You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. No. No. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah. If it's on my terms, I love it. And mm-hmm. if it's not, it's hell. I would never like willfully drag people's attention in my direction. I would never like, excuse me, everyone, excuse me. It's not in my character. Really? You've never like been like, excuse me. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> no, I've, never, I've never interrupted an event. I have to... something to say about Brandon <laughs> and Glenda. While I don't know them very well, <laughs> I predict great things for this wacky couple. I think they're going to be... I think they're going to be okay. Uh, I think they're going to be okay. And I think that uh, they're going to have a pretty crazy family. <laughs> if you're... Paying even a modicum of attention, then you know that you're listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast, right? <laughs> and I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today, of course, is the great Ashley Glicken. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Hi, Louis. Thanks for being here. Thank Bye. you for having me. All right. Chicago versus New York. Oh, no. What's, what's better and why? Louis, Let's why? just do it. Are we going to do it? I want to do it. Do, we, do, do I have to... Are you going to force me to make a choice? Yes. Like a real solid... You're going to have to commit to this one. Okay. So I have to make pros and cons lists with almost everything I do. Okay. So pros of New York, lively, better art scene, different, but also I think better. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, great theater, great improv, great comedy. I mean, it's New York. Um great like great baseball teams mm-hmm. you know uh cons it's dirty there's no escape in the summer um hard to get around uh people are a little bit a little bit crueler here mm. um and chalk it up to like uh, a a brave rugged personality type which is a lie and um you know bad winners mm-hmm. Chicago, pros. Oh, beautiful in the summer. So beautiful. Uh, If you don't know, uh, there's a law in Chicago that all beachfront cannot be privatized, so it's all public. Good law. Yeah. It's why uh, Chicago survived what happened to a lot of the Rust Belt cities when industries like steel and manufacturing collapsed because it was all built on the water, and then you lose your water is tourism so chicago's lovely in the summer great pizza Mm -hmm. it's deep dish Mm -hmm. it's a beast great hot dogs Mm -hmm. oh lots of stuff on it good stuff famous for their hot dogs in chicago famous for their hot dogs um you know oprah michael jordan uh great baseball teams Mm -hmm. cons uh it didn't have the art community and theater community that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. It didn't have enough opportunities. And that's ironic because I had tons of opportunities, but I just needed more. I needed a bigger pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what brought me to New York. Also worse winners. <laughs> that's interesting. In my naive knowing nothing about it, just like reading stuff online, yeah. I've like built up Chicago in my mind as, as being a way more accessible theater town than New York. Yeah. Right, because there's a certain amount of accessibility. Uh-huh. Um, or just like a lot more theater companies. Maybe I'm thinking of Chicago in the 70s and 80s and not modern day Chicago. No, there's a ton of stuff in Chicago. 
Um, I mean, you've got Second City, you've got IO, you've got Annoyance, of course. You've got lots of black black box theaters where you can perform, put up independent stuff. Um, But specifically, uh, and this isn't really what brought me to New York, actually. I was more interested in the art scene, the visual art scene here. Um, But in many ways, I was actually trying to escape improv when I left Chicago. Let's talk about that. Yeah. um, So... I started doing improv when I was 16, which is like early. I was really lucky. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and I was introduced to improv at a young age. And uh, we had a comedy club in my high school and uh, teachers from Second City and I.O. would teach us. Uh, I fell in love with improv immediately. It was like electric. Because uh, I've loved theater my whole life. I've loved theater. I did theater camp. I just always loved performing. But theater has a lot of restrictions. Uh, there are parts that are meant for certain people. And I'm a wheelchair user. And very few parts were meant for me. And then I did improv. And you can make up all the rules as you go. And it just, I mean, it was like being struck by lightning. I blew my mind and I could make people laugh. So I loved improv right from the get-go. Did it in college in New England, came back to Chicago. I took an intensive at Second City. Um, And then I auditioned for the conservatory and I did the conservatory. And it was amazing, but those stages are not accessible mm-hmm. and it was really difficult for anyone who's never been to second city. It exists in a, uh, like a, like a theater compound of sorts. I don't know how many theaters, I mean, they just updated it after the fire yeah. a years ago, but there's like, there's main stage ETC, the dining sky box, dining sky box. there's the, the Martin DeMott. DeMott theater. Yeah. There's like six or seven theaters in mm-hmm. there. It's like a mall. Mm-hmm filled with theaters. Yeah. And uh, yeah, not the, not the most accessible place in the world. No, the DeMott's the most accessible theater and the smallest. Mm-hmm. That's the really independent one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did a show there once called Future Show. <laughs> it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the conservatory program, they do this thing where they get everyone in this room and they say what your, they tell you what your options are, right? Um. And I was like, sitting. I'm sorry. Are you, you're like in this room by yourself in front of the staff, or you? No. It's like the entire student. Well, body they do is. that too earlier on, and I can talk about that later because that was a different experience. But it's the student body of the class. Is it like the end of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where you are doing your history presentation in front of the whole school? Lewis, I'm not a nerd. Okay? I'm not a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> it's sorry. just like Bewitched. Okay. You got to give a presentation to the ad executives. How can you? Give me shit about Bill and Ted's Adventure. <laughs> right before we started recording this, you were giving me shit because I didn't get your Encino Man reference. <laughs> it's bullshit. I know. Oh. I'm sorry to cut you off. <sighs> I'm just being difficult. <laughs> I'm so difficult. Um, no, it was uh, everyone in the room. Um, and then the staff tells you what next steps are, right? Audition in, in, for these. In general or next steps for you as an individual? No, for in general. Okay. Right? So it's like, here are the things you can audition for. Here's how you sign up to audition. You know, 
when you get on these shows, you're also a writer, you know, and they have like an improv to sketch kind of format of writing. Um, and it was like the opposite of the first time I did improv, which felt like this lightning strike and this like opening up and like blasting open the doors of the world for me. It was like, I felt like I was sinking because I was like, no one's going to put me on any stage. I can't perform here. What can I do? I can't really audition to be a writer because that's not really the process here. And IO has an accessible stage, but also their main stage is up a flight of stairs and the annoyance isn't really accessible for a performer. And it was just like, oh, look, I just saw Get Out. <laughs> and it's great. And I, I don't want to do a ton of spoilers. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, so please bear. <sighs> but I'll, I'll take one. It, it, Here's one thing. Okay. There's this idea of a thing called the sunken place. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me. It's when you feel like there's nowhere for you to go because of who you are. And I gave up on improv for a few years. I just was like, I can't because of who I am. I can't do this. And being around it hurts. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to dive back into the visual arts, right? So I moved here with that goal in mind. But, um, but before I left, you know, I had asked a teacher at I.O., you know, what are the theaters in New York that aren't UCB? Um, I'd been to UCB and it's wonderful, but it's down a flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. Are there any other theaters, you know? And they're like, well, there's the pit, you know, and there's a place called Magnet. Great. But then I was like, you know, I've given up an improv. And, uh, but not given up enough to have avoided asking about the improv. Lewis, can you ever really give up on improv? No, it's in your blood. It stays with you. It's in your blood. Um, and this, I love this. I think I've told you the story of how I really came the magnet. Um, I was in New York in grad school and some close friends of mine from Chicago who I had done sketch stuff with, they have a, they had an indie sketch team called Otheodora and they were performing at UCB and they're like, please come. And I had so much work to do. It's like, ugh, and I gotta see my friends. Guess I'll go to UCB. And I went. And when I was there, I met a guy named Willie Appleman mm -hmm. who did sketch stuff with these guys uh, at Syracuse or not Syracuse. That's wrong. Whatever. And I said, Oh yeah. What, what kind of comedy do you do? He's like, Oh, I perform at magnet. It's like, Oh, I've heard of magnet. Yeah. Um, got crazy question. Do you know if their training center is accessible? And Willie was like, their main stage is accessible. And that feeling I had gotten when I first did improv where it's like the doors blow open mm -hmm. and I like felt it again. And I went home and I went to the website and I signed up for my first class. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, right? What was it like coming back to it after all the time? Ugh, it was very emotional. Yeah. It was terrifying. Hmm. Yes, I had that 
uh, initial moment of, oh, God, I'm going to do it again, right? And then uh, the panic set back in. I had signed up for this class with a, some guy named Nick Canellis. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise known as the beast otherwise known as the beast but i didn't know that then i was just like this is just some guy named nick canellis i read his bio seemed like he knew about chicago improv because been the northwestern and but i don't know who this guy is and you know i was really scared going to that very first class because you just don't know people are afraid of me sometimes mm-hmm. uh because people don't know how to interact with disabled people sometimes. Um, and I was like, did I, did I email the director? Did I tell them uh, to warn him mm-hmm. that I would be in this class? You're expecting uh, him to freak out. Just to freak out, you know? Weird. Yeah. And I did. I was like, just warn him. Yeah. Uh, they were like, okay. <laughs> and I came in and, uh, you know, and just welcomed me right into the class. Um, the first scene I ever did in a magnet venue was with someone who I later found out was my big sib, who uh, a lady named Hannah Chase. Excellent big sib. Excellent big sib. One of the finest. I mean, it was kind of incredible. Um, and God, it just felt like coming home again. Mm-hmm. It was just so immediate that I was able to come back into this world of uh, creation and, and making your own rules and making rules together. Mm-hmm. And um, the class was wonderful. Uh, everyone was so open-minded and, and caring and it was just great. To, to back up yeah. uh, quite a bit. One of the uh, best things about improvising is the non-literalness of it. Ah, yeah. Um, Which is, you know, one one of the things that you try to teach people in earlier levels is to loosen up their imagination and Mm. and be childlike in that way that you can be costumed in whatever you want to be costumed and you can play more or less anybody you want to play. And so like you see sometimes in classes the, the thing where like anyone in a class over 40 will oftentimes be initiated as like mom or dad uh, by yeah. somebody. Um, oh my gosh, for sure. You know, which is kind of like it, it, these, these like weird choices sometimes that keep people just like sticking to the literal surface yeah. of their impressions of somebody and, and never like opening their imagination up you know, to that. I mean, I bet people uh, when they initiate a scene with you, they're like, Stop surfing, bro. Yes. Because. Because of my long uh, knotted Not beards, my sun bleached beard. beard yeah. Uh, Your swim trunks. My swim trunks. I'm frequently carrying a surfboard <laughs> with me. Yeah. Yeah. Lewis, come on. But I want you to see past that. Well, that's what I said most people would do. I would never do that to you, Lewis. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. So you had recently posted on Facebook mm. Uh, mm. Uh, that when the conversation is about diversity and improv, mm. you yourself don't feel included or don't see yourself included. Yes. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I think that is a paraphrase. Uh, what I, 
I don't know if did I mention improv? I post about disability. I think I, I don't, you may deal. not have mentioned improv, but I think you said one that you say what you said. I won't. No, this is this is interesting. I think what I said was, um, I said, as a disabled person, I often don't feel welcome in diverse spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what you're referring to? That is. It's interesting, right? So we immediately believe improv is supposed to be a diverse space, right? We think artistic endeavors belong in a diverse space. At least that's what I think most people believe. Um, but like everything, uh, it's more complicated than that. Um, you know, there was, and this is just one example, but there was a, diversity improv festival a few months ago that I had been signed up for. Someone had asked me to be a part of and a good friend of mine was working on organizing it. And I just had a feeling and I reached out to, to my friend and said, is the space where this festival is being held handicap accessible? And, uh, my friend looked into it and was mortified, you know, it's like, no, I'm like, yeah, of course. Uh, that's one example. Um, when we talk about diversity, sometimes we're not talking about certain people Mm -hmm. and frequently certain people are disabled people. Um, which hurts obviously. And, uh, and it's a big problem, you know, it's a lot of problems with a lot of, uh, root causes. Uh, one of which is just that people don't, for whatever reason, seem to see the disabled as like a diverse group. Mm-hmm. It's, this is my understanding of what I see people do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just seems like I'm a it's, I'm a different group. We're in a different group. Um, that's viewed not with what people would call hatred. It's being viewed as an inconvenience, Uh um, which is, by the way, still hate. It just looks different. Uh Uh, but people don't want to use those words and it's the sneaky way people have found to um, disenfranchised disabled people for like a very long time is that, uh, it's not, they're not the problem. We were built wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but guess what, baby? We're all built wrong. Bodies are organic. They're all going to fall apart. Um, it's insane to me that people don't realize that they're going to get old and crumble. It's just insane to me. When we take care of disabled people, we're taking care of ourselves 100%. Mm -hmm. But instead, we're incorrect instead of diverse. And we don't get the ramps. We don't get the elevators. We don't get to do, you know, improv or or theater or even bland things. You know, if the building isn't accessible, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, 
and it, it's an especially sharp knife to twist in a person who is kept down to also say, you don't count as diverse. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was referring to. And Magna is a safe space for me, but it's not the same in a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there's, um, like different degrees of bias. There's, there's willful prejudice and, and there's kind of bias by occlusion, kind of biasing against a class of people by mm -hmm. just never really considering a yeah. class of people or, or, or failing to categorize a class of people. Yeah. You know? And it's interesting because there's also like an institutionalized bias against disabilities that I think non-disabled people don't perceive as a bias simply by never thinking about the way that it's built into the design of a modern city. Yeah, right. Like for example, um, many, many improv theaters, if you travel around the country, are walk-up improv theaters. Yeah. The reason being that uh, space is cheaper to rent in a walk-up in most cities. Right. And so by default, improv theaters tend to be not accessible to people. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think the 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 budding awareness of how wrong that is um, is sort of like a double whammy because it's also kind of an awareness of you start to look around the city and realize, oh, my God. Yeah. It's um, – this is horrible and it just comes from generations and generations of never thinking about it at all. Yeah. And generations and generations of uh, of people with disabilities not uh, having a chance to be heard, mm -hmm. um, either because they're ignored or because they literally can't get to a place where they can be heard. Right. Uh, disability isolates people. Right. Um, by the architecture of the world, mm -hmm. the way it's built. And I've gotten into... Lewis, I've had some crazy conversations in my life with strangers <laughs> who love to talk to me mm. about my life. And uh. <laughs> people will often be like, well, what do you expect? You know? Like, that they, we, like they're angry at you? Yeah. People are angry at me. They're like, what? We don't, we don't open the theater. This is all we can afford. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's either we have this theater space that you're not a part of or we care about you and nobody gets to do theater ever. Mm -hmm. It's just so absurd. Um, I, I just don't understand why it has to be one or the other. If you want to bring out a real ugly side of people, inconvenience them. Exactly. And it's actually <laughs> amazing of, of, uh, having that mild irritation of having to be inconvenienced will, will really make somebody ugly towards oh, you. It's one of my favorite things to do in improv. Yeah. <laughs> I love pushing people. Well, in improv, it's fun. You know, <laughs> we, we kind of ritually do it for our own amusement, but like in real life, it, it is that thing of people just don't want to be reminded of what they're overlooking. And yeah. so when you point out of, of, Oh, there's a, there's, I hate to inconvenience you, but there's a problem here to be addressed. That little tiny inconvenience is in most people going to be met with a backlash of like real shit behavior. True. I think with most people it does. 
um, a lot of my interaction in the world is like, it's just a roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I going to be met with compassion or am I going to be met with anger? Mm. Uh, it's really terrifying sometimes. Um, I think to people with uh, empathy and compassion, it's it can be alarming. Uh, they don't sometimes understand that not everyone's that way. Mm-hmm. Uh that people would be hostile to me, that I can get on a bus and people will be furious that they have to leave their seats mm-hmm. for me because it seems like a no-brainer to others. Um, but it's important that people with empathy see that, right? We notice that too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also imagine that with there's the extra added layer of it's probably more on you to educate other people about how to treat you like a dignified human being than it is on them to, to uh, uh, not wait to be educated. I mean, I hate to put words in your mouth, but I, I just assume as a blanket experience that that's probably true. It's just by the nature of. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, I always recognize the the, all the ways in which I've been brainwashed Mm -hmm. by the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I believe the lies. I do. Sometimes I feel like I am an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And those are the times when I'm really gung-ho about educating. When I'm like, it's my responsibility to educate. And it's my responsibility to be better, um, which is probably the most insidious uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, uh, I guess, lie I, I sometimes buy into, um, is I have to be the best or nobody will care about me. Uh-huh. I have to be the smartest. I have to be the most even-headed. Mm. I can't get fired up. Got to explain to people how things work. Then I have to marvel them with my brilliance. Mm. Oh, it's a dead end game. Mm. But I fall into it all the time. And sometimes I don't want to educate people. But I have to. You know? If not for me, for other people. You know, for other disabled people. I think... um I I read this uh I read this book Sapiens. Mm, I read it? Sapiens. I haven't read it. Boy, is it fantastic. <laughs> one of the one of the points it makes is if you look at maps before the modern era, m- maps of the world are always complete including uh, areas of the world that that like we don't know anything about we include that area on the map with what we assume is there mm. it's only with like the advent of science that maps begin to be incomplete and yeah. to sketch in to allow areas where we don't know what's mm-hmm. there and that's kind of the beginning of a shift in a worldview from this archaic idea that everything you need to know 
is already in the holy books yeah. of the world. And our job is to simply research that and, and look to that to guidance in a world that's already complete and perfect and whole. Mm-hmm. And the rules are firmly entrenched and represent the, the, the known laws of the universe versus a modern scientific world where the world is unknown and constantly reshaping itself and you see it more as an open-ended experiment. Yeah. And I think sometimes even something like the layout of a city, it tends to be implied in our minds that this represents the best that we are capable of accomplishing and the most convenient for the most number of people. And to question that or to be an inconvenience for that is to be an irritant at best, to be ignored. Yeah. Because the work's already been done. Exactly. We have an order in our society that's been made for us. Right. That is correct. And it's too much work to do anything about it. Yeah. And that's it. But uh, I'm hoping that the, the future is a greater realization that everything is just an ongoing experiment and an ongoing work at self-improvement at doing things better. I think so. And I think it also requires a fair amount of destruction. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's like, this building is old and it has so much history. People bring this up to me a lot. Like, what about these old buildings? All this history. And I'm like, tear it down. Why are we so precious about this history? We have other ways of preserving it. We're so precious about history. A lot of history needs to be seriously, seriously destroyed and rebuilt. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Everyone wants a compromise. Um, Sometimes the compromise is let's get rid of the bad thing. Why the hell do we have cobblestone streets? Mm. No one needs these. Is it nostalgic? I don't care. It's a bad thing. Get rid of it. That's why it was so important to me to ask, to answer that New York versus Chicago question. Sometimes we need firm answers on things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never answered it that way. How can you make a choice? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like saying to someone, what's your favorite movie? The correct answer is, well, well, when? When, oh. when do you want to know? I, depends, no, the correct right? answer is heavyweights. Godfather Part 2. Oh, heavyweights, of course. <laughs> of course. No, uh, I think that part of like this idea of there are things that are unknown mm-hmm. and maybe there are things that are known wrong. Oh, of course, yeah. Right? Yeah. And we got to undo it. It's like, well, what do you want us to do just like, like completely tear down the building? Like, yeah. Build, build an elevator that costs a ton of... Yeah. Yes. Allocate the money for it. Yes. Re, reorganize the way the world is built. Hmm. I think that is a fine answer to the question. Yeah, you have to, you have to make enough of a stink about it for something to be done, which is why it's so important to be involved with different advocacy groups. Mm-hmm. There's a great video that the Cerebral Balsy Foundation has been putting out to raise awareness of it mm-hmm. uh, um, until you have a pretty high volume of, of uh, feedback on it. I think most people are going to ignore the problem. Yeah. And that's why I do improv <laughs> in small ways. It is. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, I do improv because 
I love to perform. I love to make people laugh. I love theater. I love creation. Uh, I love all that. But there's a big part of me whenever I get on stage that feels like I'm doing this for the disabled community, Mm -hmm. which is also like a big, (laughs) uh, it's a big pressure sometimes, but it's not unwarranted. Yeah. I, I, if I may be so bold as to fucking piggyback on your life experience, I imagine that there's a double-edged sword there of on the one hand, when you're, when you're doing it on behalf of a larger cause, it gives a sense of purpose Mm -hmm. and a sense of mission and, 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 and uh, a sense of value. And on the other hand, that's an unfair burden to have on your shoulders to see yourself as a representative of an entire group of people. Totally. And it's also very narcissistic. Sure. Um, But then I go to a bar and I have someone who's had a little too much to drink or maybe not too much come up to me and say, you know, when you got on stage, I thought I would have to laugh at you. Hmm. And it's not unusual. This has been said to me many times. And it's like, and then you, and then I just, I didn't mind laughing. And then you just made me laugh. Meaning what? That they would laugh at at you out of? Out of pity. pity. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Or people think, I thought you weren't going to be as well spoken. It's just like it's it, it, right it, to you, Lewis. You know, it's it's it seems crazy, and it's not. So, yes, it's absurd for me to put that burden on my shoulders. But then, if I have a bad show, there's a crazy part of me that's like, was that person in the audience? It's hard. I know exactly what you mean. Every time. I do a bad show. I'm like, this reflects real badly on on guys with beards, <laughs> with hoodies and glasses. And pretty soon we're not going to be welcome anymore. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to rally for you every day, Lewis. I'm sorry. No, I love it. We need to lighten the, lighten the air in here a little bit. Though I get so intense. You, you really do. This is a super intense conversation and not just because of the subject matter. You're very intense. I know. I love it. Oh, thank you, Lewis. It's crackling in here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I do believe it. I, I'm not shocked by that. I, I um, I, I like to think that while I'm a very optimistic person, I also feel like I never underestimate the sheer shittiness and stupidity of most everybody. But so while I don't doubt it, what surprises me is how little I think about how much of that shit you probably have to endure. Yes. Yes. Because I feel like I, I, I'm nervous around other people all the time. It's one reason why I go home after shows. You never see me hanging out or doing anything. I just don't. Okay. I that's get, good to know. Cause I always took it personal. Sorry. No, it's not I you. told you I'm a narcissist. It's not, you know, it's <laughs> everybody. It's just, I feel nervous around people, but like, I also feel like I have an ability to just kind of disappear in a crowd. I can just go inside myself and disappear and that's it. I can, I feel like I can be anonymous and, you know. That sounds like a dream, Lewis. <laughs> yeah, and I take it for granted <laughs> that not everybody has that. Has that. Yeah. But God, when I'm on stage, I don't want to be invisible. Yeah. I really don't. That's the time to be seen. Yeah. It's just... There are times I feel more comfortable on stage than I do in life Mm -hmm. Um, because of what 
improv gives you is that entire uh, realm of possibility, mm-hmm. being able to do whatever you want. Um, and you and your teammates decide the terms, right? Uh, my, uh, one of my previous coaches, Sebastian Canelli, once said, you tell the audience what's funny. Mm-hmm. And it s- strikes me so much. And it's like, yeah, like when I get on stage, I get to tell them what's funny. And like people listen mm-hmm. and they hear it. And, oh, God, it's so sexy. I, yeah, it, it, it there's that element of control to it. Mm-hmm. And there's that element of ego, healthy ego, which is uh, you all shut up now <laughs> and listen to what I have to say. Yeah. And and I think that there's also the element of, of um, you have to feel seen on a very basic level. You have to feel seen by other people to kind of feel like whole and real. I mean, then like medically that's true. Medically yeah. you like your immune system gets fucked up if you're not being seen by other people. Interesting. You know, like that's an important, we need, we need that kind of contact and performance gives you that ability to be in control of when and how you're seen. And improv gives you the ability to be seen and to let your goofiest part out. I was just talking with Christian uh, Palak in the last podcast and he, you know, his thing is like, you want to be performing. The goal is to be as loose and silly as you are when you're by yourself in your bathroom in the mm-hmm. morning, that, that voice that's coming out of you spontaneously, your goal is to do that publicly in front of people, to be that secure with yourself and that relaxed. I'm dead silent in the bathroom. Really? <laughs> Just super serious. I yeah. believe it. You can, I believe you can, you it. You could hear a pin drop in there. And you do it just to spite yourself too, I imagine. <laughs> exactly. But there's like th- <laughs> that that feeling of like being like witnessed. I think is like it's it empowers you. Yeah. And I think it gives you um, energy. Yeah. And then you get to make people laugh, which is the best. It's the best. Oh God. Yeah, I, I showing off how. Uh, uh, how mean you can be <laughs> showing off how quick you can be yeah. showing off how sarcastic you can be Oh God! showing off how deadpan you can be. All that stuff is just like the greatest feeling in the world. Yeah. Or like being in on the joke, mm-hmm. being in on the joke. Sometimes when I'm on the sidelines of a show, avalanche or, um, you know, I'm really fortunate. I've been able to perform in a lot of shows over the last year or so. And when you feel that incredible energy, like, man, this is fun. Mm-hmm. And I sit on the sidelines and I'm watching it and I'm laughing and I'm like, oh, wow. I get to be a part of this. I'm on the stage. I'm part of the joke. You know, I'm laughing with these people. Mm-hmm. I could jump in at any moment and be a part of the scene or I can sit back and watch it. It's, oh my gosh. 
if I was to tie this back to disability, what I would say is it's that feeling of getting to be a part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, even more than doing, you know, great, uh, great improv or being the funniest person. It's like, I look around and I'm like, oh, I'm a part of those. I'm part of the world. I'm on stage right now. I get to go on that ramp in the theater and I'm on stage. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm not the center of attention or even if I'm, I'm bombing <laughs> big time, I'm still on that stage. It's crazy, crazy, crazy good feeling. I, you know, I think about this, the kind of like um, dual nature of the laugh. Because mm. um, when like laughing is, is one of like the key ways that we develop a sense of solidarity with each other. Mm. And, and it's that double-edged sword again, because everybody remembers the experience of being laughed at when you're younger, mm. where the laugh means... The laugh is everybody developing solidarity against you. You're the example to everybody of the outcast. And that binds people together. And there's some people who never outgrow like that. Comedy for them never matures beyond that idea. Mm. And I think that like it's a pretty ugly thing because in a way we never quite outgrow that either. We still use laughter as a way to create group bonds with each other Mm -hmm. and create a sense of belonging and togetherness. But like I, I, I feel a very special pride in teaching people to regain control of that laugh and teaching people to create a sense of solidarity on your own terms. Oh, yeah. To not have people be the butt of the joke, mm-hmm. but to hold ourselves up as the object or the channeling device of ridicule as a way to kind of soften that for everybody else and make everybody in the room feel that they relate and that they are included in it. So it's, you're, you, I mean, it, it's a morally neutral thing, the power of laughter. I think just as a bunch of animals, it binds us together and, yeah. uh, um, and, and we go through a phase of life where we use it in kind of cruel and malicious. Totally. And then you kind of have to learn how to grow up as a person. Oh, but yeah. something about the art of comedy as a tool for inclusion, um, and teaching people how to use it for good ends. Yeah. Uh, um, how to make people feel safer and make people feel better and make people feel part of a larger whole. Yeah. Like there, I'm the last person in the world who should be saying anything about diversity because I literally am the walking caricature of what an improviser <laughs> looks like. Um, I don't know. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty <laughs> goddamn close. You're pretty close. But, but to me, when I think of of becoming better at being more diverse and becoming better at being more aware, it, it's it's not just a political thing. It, there's something, you know, for risk of being, you know, that guy. There's like mm-hmm. a larger spiritual thing to it too. Of of it's about reinforcing this bond together that acknowledges that we're all part of a whole yeah that we make up the whole together yeah and that if any of us feels outside of that whole it's to the detriment of that individual but it's also to the detriment of the whole 
as well. Yeah. We're, we're an organism. Yeah. I mean, we function as a, as a larger body. Yeah, agreed. The Corpus Christi, if you will, the larger body of Christ. Oh God, we're such a Corpus Christi. I think so. No, I, uh, I, I, I feel that in a big way. And I, I spoke with Hannah about this. Hannah uh, Chase, Chase, classic uh, Big Sib. Uh, classic Big Sib, now classic uh, teacher, director, uh, She performer. has little, little Big Sibs of her own now. I know, right? Uh, we've, we've spoken about that before, about the power of um, unifying uh, in comedy. And what you just said about, you know, how we laugh at and we laugh with, you know, it's like a joke, but it's true. And it, it made me remember something from my uh, early life uh, that now I'm thinking about in a different way. And uh, it was when I was very young. I think I was probably seven years old and um, I was wearing shorts and I have scars on my legs from surgeries I've had. And uh, this woman was laughing at me and pointing at my scars and my dad like lost his mind. <laughs> um, and that was like this very scary moment for me. Mm. I also remember being at summer camp playing this game where we sat in a circle and you had to go around trying to make people laugh and they had to try and be serious. But if you made them laugh, then, you know, you sat in their place and the person got up and it's just like a schoolyard game, right? I had both of those experiences when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to reclaim laughter in a positive way by having that experience as a child playing that game. Mm -hmm. I don't know what my experience with comedy would be like if I had had too much of the other in my life, the other I, story. I, I think that, I think that there is a, like a conscious turning point for mm -hmm. people. I think that there, you have like a window of opportunity when you're younger and some part of you like makes the choice or makes the realization somehow of like there's a good kind of laugh. Yeah. There's a good kind of funny. And you, you kind of just like know it. And I think that choosing that sets you on a particular path with your life. I've, I've, so many of the people I've talked to have had that like remember clearly yeah. having the experience of the good laugh and realizing like, oh, I can do this. I can make yeah. this happen. Totally. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. What was your clear memory of the good laugh so lame and so cliche <laughs> and it had to do with like my first like early adolescence of of like girls and feeling humiliated and feeling you know being being the butt of jokes and, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff and uh realizing i don't know i'm probably editing memories together but i have a really specific <laughs> realization a specific memory of going for a walk by myself and and um like thinking long and hard about it and realizing that you could either be the butt of this and feel humiliated and, and not be in control of it, or you can try to get them to laugh at you. Yeah. And so what have you got to lose it this way? They're going to laugh at you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're doing it on purpose, then, yeah. then you got it. And it was like a, I don't know, it was like a waking up moment. That's the difference between being a comedian and being a joke. And being the victim of your own feelings of 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 um, 
lack of self-esteem. Yeah, totally. And, and, and simmering and, and feeling angry and, and simmering and feeling resentful and, yeah. and actually like doing something about it. Changing, you can't change other people, but you can change the way that you. Process your feelings. Process your feelings and the way that you act on those feelings. Yeah. Um, you can make something of yourself totally. rather than, rather than sit and wish that the world were a better place than it is. I mean, I do that too. Everyone does that, <laughs> but you're not chronically. Oh God. Sometimes. Well, every, right? well yeah, I guess. So. Uh, but then I get to go to the magnet and then I get to get on stage. Magnet's a very special place. I'm, I feel very, very proud to be a part of the magnet. Yeah. It, um, I, I think that the magnet's a very honest place. And uh, I think that like the overwhelming spirit of the place, it, it, I think that people really do try their best and, and, and try to be good to each other and practice that as like a philosophy of comedy to like totally. be smart and be respectful and do well. Yeah. And people are funny. <laughs> you know, I think back to, I'm sorry to harp on this, but like a grown up laughing at you as a seven year old kid yeah, is a particularly cruel, horrible thing. And <laughs> yeah. Just like trying to understand the psychology of like why a grown up would do that. Oh, uh, I mean, I perceive that as a thing of, uh, there's, just below the surface of laughing is hostility and just below the surface of hostility is fear probably. Oh yeah. Well, uh, somebody once told me somebody once said that like the root of all rage is fear and pain. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, take that for what it is. You know, it's still rage. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I think that when we uh, are cruel to other people, uh, it's because we are either fearful or in pain. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think about, <laughs> I think about that woman uh, and actually, you know, uh, and it's like so crazy. And then I felt so embarrassed because my dad was so sad, like so upset, mm -hmm. you know, and it embarrassed me. I was like, oh. Did you perceive, I mean, you were seven, did you perceive her laughing at you or was it your dad getting upset that jolted yeah. you into it? You did. Yeah. No, I perceived it big time. Yeah. Um, it's not a singular experience. Mm -hmm. People are like so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like people are so basic, Lewis. Don't forget like the vast, first of all, on an evolutionary timeline, we haven't gotten far out of the mud just yet. No, and it's also it. like the vast bulk of people are are basically monkeys who can dress themselves. Yeah, and also people laugh when they're nervous. Yeah, like, oh, that looks funny to me. Yeah, um, and I don't know how to handle it, so I laugh, you know. Or, God, I've had a horrible day, and I just need to like feel better than someone else who's mm -hmm. an easy target. Right, right. Um, and again, like that's something I'm familiar with um and it might not be as apparent to everyone um which is why that thing i said about like being a real ally is seeing that people are people laugh or that people get ticked off and they have to wait for a different elevator or mm -hmm. you know all that little some might call it microaggressions. Doesn't feel as micro to me, but you know, that is uh 
as allies, as humans, we observe that as well as doing the right thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and try to take care of each other. Um, yeah. I mean, it's difficult to be a witness, oh. to, to be a witness to, to, to other people is a real challenge because it means that you yourself have to be inconvenienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to share in someone else's pain or discomfort yeah. uh, uh, in order to be there. If not for them, then be there with them. And uh, I think for a lot of people who don't think of themselves as bad people, and uh, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, I, I have had my moments where I, I turn and look away. Oh, me too. I mean, I think that you do. And you feel rotten about yourself afterwards. Yeah. But I think that it's that thing of of it's just easier not to share in your struggle right now. So you turn away and you forget that there's a responsibility to witnessing each other. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that responsibility is is you have to get over your own comfort sometimes. Uh, man, yeah. Big time, big time. And that's, uh, that's really powerful, right? When we start to get good at not being comfortable and then we, uh, and then we, we learn and we adapt and we get stronger. Then we get emboldened. I think when we learn to look at the bad thing, Mm -hmm. then we start seeing this is what I have to do or this is how I can be of service or uh, you know, how can I, who can I talk to about this to process this information? Um, instead of just like looking away mm-hmm. and looking at the beautiful painting mm-hmm. or watching the funny movie, mm-hmm. um, we, we get uncomfortable and then we, uh, we learn how to be uncomfortable and it doesn't, it doesn't become as uncomfortable anymore. Well, it also has the, I think that's when you start to feel the sense of being part of a whole together. Exactly. It's one thing to, you can read a bunch of books on Eastern philosophy and, and intellectually be aware uh, uh, that, oh yes, well, of course we are all one entity, but you don't necessarily feel it. And I think that in those moments where you share in that discomfort and share in, and that inconvenience, it starts to actually like emotionally sink in that like your, your pain is my pain and vice versa. Yeah. We're, you know, it's the only way to bear it. Yeah. You know, when you really, uh, start to empathize with other people's pain or like, even for myself, like sometimes I just feel like I can't do it. Like I can't leave my apartment right now. I can't deal with it, you know? Um, but I know it's the right thing to do. So how am I going to do this? Well, I'm going to call my friend Emily, who understands me, she's going to talk to me. You know, I'm going to talk to my friends about it. I'm going to read about it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to write about it, right? Um, and it'll make me tougher, right? Or thinking about any one of the insane things happening in our world right now. Uh, we've got to talk about it and share it with other people and make it bearable. Uh Oof, big time. We have a long way to go. Yeah. And, but I feel like a broken record saying this. I do remain optimistic. I think like how, how old are you when you start to like read and develop critical thinking skills? Like eight, uh, seven, 
I mean, you start to read around like four or five. Yeah. But like, okay, so you're starting to develop like flexibility with like language and like map making and and, and yeah. r- r- around like four to probably that era, right? I mean, I probably did it like way sooner. I'm, I'm sure that you did. <laughs> but I think if you think of like the history of humankind on this planet, yeah, it's only in the last hundred years or so that we've started to get to the four-year-old level of beginning to actually like get rid of old medieval maps and realize that we don't know everything and start to have to like critically think about stuff. Mm. So I think it's a painful process and a long road, but for me, it, it softens the sense of futility. If I think of it that in the lifespan of our species on this planet, we're in about the second grade right now Oh yeah, and are having to learn how to start to become like, grown-ups oh my gosh i have so much optimism such optimism i yeah no i have a lot of faith um in people in the world in patterns Mm. oh my gosh i believe in patterns uh and improv and in life um and like numerology pattern numerology the power of the number 23 oh yeah, you know, uh, Fibonacci sequence, man. Uh, seashells. <laughs> it's all connected, Lewis. Uh, but like noticing things in your life, you know, it's... Ugh, sometimes I feel like when you compare life to improv, it can feel a little like sappy, but I also like entirely do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like in scenes, you want to like, Keep your eyes, ears, senses open for repetition, right? Because if it's repeating, it's important. And I see that happen in my life as well. I think we see it happen in our lives. When problems reoccur, you know, those problems have to be addressed, you know? Or if things make us feel a certain way, well, if it's a good feeling, we want to return to it, right? When things present themselves to us uh, multiple times. Uh, maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe it's something to pay attention to and follow. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm, I believe that. Actually, we do a thing periodically on this show called the very serious scene with a jar of pickles. I do you, know. Do you feel like you have a scene oh, in you? God, yeah. All right. Then we're going to do a very serious thing with a jar of pickles here. This is a jar of pickles. Yes. This will be your scene partner. Mm-hmm. I'm ask you to improvise a scene for 60 seconds. It's yeah. one, one, uh, one American minute there. Okay. Uh, 60 seconds is universal, right? Globally for a minute. Okay. <clears throat> this jar of pickles is your scene partner. Here's your situation. The rule of this is that if you talk directly to the jar of pickles, the name of the character is Jar of Pickles. Okay. Because that's stupid. Okay. Here's the situation. This Jar of Pickles is a convicted serial killer. Okay. You have been coming to the prison uh-huh. for like three years to okay. conduct interviews because you're writing a book okay. on this Jar of Pickles, the serial killer. You are now here to quietly confess that you have fallen in love with this Jar of Pickles. Okay. Or asking the Jar of Pickles for... Uh, it's hand in marriage. Okay. Ashley Glicken, take it away. All right. Jar of pickles. 
I love you. I love you. Um, my grandma has a ring. It's been passed down in the family for generations. And look, it can be resized. It can be really resized, okay? Please. Jar Pickles. Will you marry me? I don't care that you're a serial killer. <sighs> Thank God. Oh my God. Uh, hey, here. it worked out it worked out well. That's not uh, uh, I think that's our best series in the jar of pickles yet. I'll tell you oh, what I liked about you. that. You you did a good acting thing that you, you, you knew what you wanted, you went right for it. Yeah. You didn't dilly-dally. No. You told the jar of pickles exactly how you felt right at the outside of the scene. You went directly to affect the jar of pickles. You know, because it's like, let's do the thing. Let's drop the bomb, and then we'll see what happens. Couldn't agree more. Of course. <laughs> of course, Lewis. Uh, you taught me everything you know. <laughs> Ashley Glickin has been a delight oh, talking to you, my friend. so fun. Thanks for being here. Uh, plug away. What do you want to plug? Oh, gosh, please. Wednesday nights. Hell yeah. Avalanche. Hell yeah. Rotating schedule, but check that Magnet Theater website. And guess what? In April, 10.30 p.m. Thursday nights, Titanic, the director's series. Hell yeah. Directed by Ms. Elena Scapettos. Hell yeah. I love her a lot. This is the show where every show takes every place show, aboard the Titanic. It's James Cameron's Titanic. Brilliant. And uh, we're just focusing on di- the different love stories that happened um, at the same time as Rose and Jack incredible cast extremely fun show and um that's what she said which is a all-female show uh monologue deconstructions i cannot remember when it is but check the website check my performer page Mm -hmm. and uh you'll see all all the upcoming shows i am listed i am enlisted there and yeah, that's follow me on Instagram. <laughs> Petite Illinite. I'm sorry, that is the worst Instagram handle. It's memorable. It rhymes. Yeah, Illinite's my Hebrew name and my rabbi ah. called me Petite Illinite. Nice. So yeah. Ashley Glicken, folks. Thanks, Woo! Ashley. Thanks, Lewis. And thank all of you good, kind, fine people for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, hey, do me a favor. Mention us on social media, okay? That that drives up the old, uh, uh, um, you know how it works. It drives, anyway, it calls attention to it. Yeah, it the bandwidth. Sense. The bandwidth, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, um, you know, a- advocate for net neutrality or against net neutrality if you're opposed <laughs> to it and you follow your own heart. Thank you to Evan Ford Barden, our producer. Thank you to Ed Herbsman, our executive oh, thank producer. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ed. Thank you to Ashley Glick and our delightful guest. Aww, thank shucks. you to all of each and every one of you individually. Just know that uh, we're all thinking of you oh, right now. Yeah. Uh, uh, so thanks for listening. All right. Bye. Bye, friend. Friend. <laughs> You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.